As we prepare to hear God's word read and proclaimed, let us pray. Holy and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Numbers, chapter 27, verses 1 through 11. Then the daughters of Zelophehad came forward. Zelophehad was son of Hepher, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, son of Joseph, a member of the Manasite clans. The names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They stood before Moses, Eleazar, the priest, the leaders, and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And they said, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in what they are saying. You shall indeed let them possess an inheritance among their father's brothers, and pass the inheritance of their father onto them. You shall also say to the Israelites, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall pass his inheritance on to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it. It shall be for the Israelites a statute and an ordinance, as the Lord commanded Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In most children, it begins when they hit about three years old as they become more aware of the world around them and develop the language skills to formulate their questions. And you know the questions. Why is the sky blue? Why does the water in the river move? Why is fire hot? Why do animals have fur? Why do I have to eat my vegetables? Why, why, why? It can be a challenging time for caregivers of young children, not just because the questions can wear out the patience of even the most attentive and encouraging among us, but also because these questions can make us realize how few answers we really have. When my children started asking why about pretty much everything, it was incredibly humbling because the truth was I often didn't really know the answer. These questions also made me more than a little uncomfortable because I realized that even though there was still so much about the world I didn't know or understand, I had for the most part accepted things as they are and stopped asking why. In a book of essays on Christian education published in the 1970s, Robert Lynn, a professor at Union Seminary in New York City, had an essay titled, A Little More Know Why, Please. 
In it, he reflected on a trend in mainline Protestant churches, a trend that has stubbornly persisted for the last 40-some years, to focus on planning. Long-range plans, strategic plans. It's a rare church that can't pull a few of these off the shelf. But the shelf is often where they end up. In Lynn's estimation, this is because plans focus on the how rather than the why. He argued back in the 70s that much of how churches approached education had become so far removed from the why that most people could no longer articulate why they did it that way. Of course, this is true of many other areas in church life and of life in general. From time to time, it can be critically important for us to ask, why? In today's story from the book of Numbers, we encounter five sisters who want to know why. This story takes place after Moses has led the Israelites out of slavery and oppression in Egypt. They're now wandering through the wilderness, going toward the promised land. In English, the title of this book, Numbers, refers to census lists in chapters 1 and 26. Just like our country does, every 10 years, the leaders of the Israelites needed to account for God's people who had escaped from Egypt, first shortly after they left Egypt, and then later after many of the original travelers had died. The census in chapter 26 is a list of all the families still traveling together in the wilderness, and it's taken so that the leaders can determine who will get land and how much they will get. The list includes the family of a man named Zelophehad, and it also includes the name of his five daughters and the detail that he had no sons. At the beginning of chapter 27, we discover why this detail was shared. Because these five sisters did something that changed forever how the Israelites allocated land after a family patriarch died. And they did so by asking why. First, the daughters of Zelophehad, who remarkably are named in the text twice, establish the faithfulness of their father. They come before Moses and the leaders and the whole congregations and first want everyone to know that their father didn't die with those who had rebelled against the leadership of Moses and Aaron. He died, they said, for his own sins, in other words, of natural causes. And then they say, why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no sons? Now, to have one's name taken away was not just a matter of one's ancestral line coming to an end. The census established which families would receive land and how much, and land to this wandering people represented security a place to call home, a place to put down roots and grow a family. For Zelophehad's daughters, having land would be the difference between a life of stability and one of precarity. To come before Moses and the Israelites and ask why was not just an intellectual exercise for these sisters. Their future depended on the answer. In the learning that many in our community have done over the summer and fall about the history of race in America, 
One of the things we have talked about is the role of land in building wealth and racial disparities in how that wealth has been distributed. Like many of you, I had heard of the 40 acres and a mule that were given to former slaves after the Civil War as a means of redistributing wealth to people who had had no opportunity to build wealth. What I didn't know is that this program ended almost before it began, when President Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's successor, overturned the order, returning the land to its original owners, with the result that many former slaves became sharecroppers, living a precarious existence on land they did not own. Nearly 100 years later, in the 1950s, Ethel Dunning knew the value of land. She and her husband Tom lived in Sumter County, Georgia, and for 26 years they worked as sharecroppers, barely eking out a living. We were struggling and never owned anything, Ethel said. Each year we'd talk about land, about building a house, but it never happened. A friend told Ethel about Koinonia Farm in Americus, Georgia, which had been founded in the 1950s by Clarence Jordan. Jordan had a PhD in New Testament Greek, and the more he studied the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the more he looked at the world around him and asked, why? Why were God's children segregated from one another because of the color of their skin? Why was there such a deep divide between the rich and the poor? Why were the poor and people of color systematically oppressed and mistreated? And why couldn't there be a place where all God's children could live and work together in harmony with one another and with the land? Jordan's why questions led him to create just such a place, a community where black and white people could live together like the first followers of Jesus did in Acts, pooling their resources and sharing in the reconciling work of Jesus. He and his wife moved to the farm with their young children, and the first person they hired was a black man who had been a sharecropper. They worked together and ate together. And as you might imagine in the Deep South in the 1950s, this did not sit well with some in the community. Thus began years of persecution that sought to undermine and even outright destroy Koinonia Farm. There were terrifying acts of violence, bombings and fires, night riders who would spray the farm with bullets, crosses burned on the lawn of the farm's supporters. There were acts of sabotage, fences cut, crops stolen from the fields, garbage left on the property, a truck's engine filled with sugar, 300 fruit trees cut down. In spite of all this, the community grew attracting people like Ethel and Tom Dunn, among others, people who were willing to ask the question, why? Why did life in the South, a place that professed deep Christian beliefs and values, why did it look so different from what they read about in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Asking why gave that fledgling community the motivation to keep going. In spite of the violence and hardship, they kept farming and they kept looking for ways to create the kind of community they read about in the Bible. In 1966, a millionaire named Millard Fuller 
who had turned his back on his fortune and was listening for God's leading, stumbled across Koinonia Farm and went to visit. He had planned to stay two hours, but ended up talking with Clarence Jordan all day while they worked together on the farm. Two years later, Fuller and his wife became full-time residents of Koinonia. In conversations with Jordan about how they could create the kingdom of God Jesus showed us, they created the Fund for Humanity with a vision to have one million acres of land farmed and occupied by those who had no resources to possess land for themselves. This plan was a vision for how the rich could share their resources and how the poor could have hope and security, and for a way that rich and poor alike could work God's land together and provide for one another, returning any excess back to the fund to provide more land for others. This Fund for Humanity ultimately inspired Fuller to create Habitat for Humanity, an organization founded on the same principles. Both Koinonia Farm and Habitat for Humanity are still going strong today. Koinonia, Habitat for Humanity, Women's Suffrage, Civil Rights, LGBTQ Inclusion, all of these social movements and many more began when someone had the courage to ask, why? Why do we do things the way that we do? Why are some people welcomed in with no questions asked and others kept out or pushed to the margins or denied a voice or a vote? Why are certain historical figures held up as saints while others, like Clarence Jordan, are often unknown and uncelebrated? Before anyone in the United States of America was asking the why questions that create a groundswell for justice, five women, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirza, had the courage to go before their community and start a conversation by asking why. Why weren't they worthy of inheriting land that would have belonged to their father and their brothers if they had any? Their courage came from their knowledge of the law and of their people's history. They did not start this conversation by criticizing, but simply by asking why. Their courage also surely came from the fact that they did not have to start this conversation alone, but could do so together. One rabbi imagines each of the five sisters offering a few words of what was said to Moses and the people. The conversation also was not one-sided. Moses and the people listened, and they opened their hearts to that question of why. And when they realized that they didn't know the answer, Moses took the question to God and then did the necessary work to change when God said, yes, these five sisters are exactly right. The land should be theirs. What are the situations in your life, in our community, in our world that leave you asking, why? Why do we do it this way? Why is this so far from our vision of what the world could be? Why? Think of what might change when, instead of asking how we might fix an injustice, we started by asking 
why. How can we feed the hungry has a very different answer than if we ask, why are these people hungry in the first place? If we first do the work to really understand the why, the how we choose could have a very different impact. This season that has upended so many of the ways we usually do things is the perfect time to ask why about all kinds of traditions and habits that have become so ingrained we have forgotten why we started them in the first place. And this could apply to anything from why we work in offices to why we travel at the holidays. In some cases, asking why will make the things we do even more meaningful when we realize the intentions behind them. In other cases, we might discover that the original reason we started doing things this way no longer exists, and it's time to make a change. When we start a conversation by asking why, we open our hearts and our minds to one another and to the Holy Spirit, who might just use the answers to help us better see and address the injustices of our society. Because when we start with how, we risk missing an opportunity. But when we ask why, we might discover possibilities we never imagined. And we might take a step forward on the path to becoming the very people God has called and created us to be. Amen.